Welcome to Felony Friday, a presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt. Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, it is that time once again. Yes, it's time for another episode of Felony Friday. Now, today we're going to be having a conversation. We're going to be talking about some important topics in the criminal justice system. Now, I guarantee you, I don't think there's another show, definitely not in the mainstream media, and I don't think there's another podcast where they're having conversations like this, conversations about the topics we're going to be discussing that really need to be talked about to expose injustice in the criminal justice system. Now, for today's episode, I'll introduce my guest in just a minute here, but he's a frequent contributor here on Lions of Liberty, and he's going to help me break these stories down. And I want to strongly recommend... If you're following along at home, not if you're driving, don't do this, please. But if you're following along at home, you can go to the show notes page and you'll be able to find links to all the stories we're going to talk about, links to all the articles. So this is episode number 24. So you'll be able to find that at lionsofliberty.com slash FF24. As I said, my guest today, he's a frequent contributor at Lions of Liberty. He's done the uh, the podcast rounds, as we say. He's been on Libertarians in Living Rooms drinking liquor many times. He was a, uh, a key contributor to our presidential debate reaction shows, and I'm sure he will be going forward as we get into the Hillary and Donald Trump and Gary Johnson. Hopefully, Gary Johnson gets in into that insanity. This is his second appearance on Felony Friday. The first one was way back on episode 12, where we talked about a challenge to the Colorado pot law that was rejected, and we talked about a woman who somehow took a gun into court and got away with it. Yes, my guest today is none other than J.B. Lubin. JB is our resident Frenchman here on Lines of Liberty, and he resides in the city of brotherly love in Philadelphia. JB, welcome back, buddy. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me again. I guess I didn't embarrass myself too much the first time around. You called me back in, so let's do this. Yeah, you did a, you did a phenomenal job the last time around. It's been a while since I talked to you. What's been new? Nothing much. Just work, 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 and maybe occasional drinking when I can find it the time, but you know. That's about it, really. You got to fit in a little fun, for sure. I'm trying. The weather's getting warm, so I'm trying to get out a bit more, maybe get a vacation in there. We'll see. We'll see what happens. You got to take a break from the grind. Now, I want to go a little off topic for a minute, and this is kind of out of the blue. I, I didn't tell you about this, but it's my show, so I, I can do what I want to, I guess. And uh, I just wanted to ask you, we haven't really talked about, I haven't talked to you on a podcast for a while. I just wanted to to get your take on, on Gary Johnson getting the Libertarian nomination. What do you think of Gary Johnson real quickly? You got anything you want to get off your chest about that? Well, <laughs> as you probably well know, he wasn't my choice out of the, the candidates for the Libertarian nomination. I threw my voice behind Austin Peterson. That's who I wanted. And I'm probably going to join the chorus and say I'm, I'm pretty disappointed with his nomination. I don't really think he's a Libertarian in the slightest He's far less of a libertarian than I am, and sometimes I doubt if I even am one, and he is far less so. Even in my moments of most doubt, he, I am far more of a libertarian than he will ever be. I feel like it's a step backwards for the party, and we don't have very much to gain from another Gary Johnson election run and everything to lose without putting a fresh face out there with the real ideals that libertarianism is supposed to you know, represent. I 100% agree with you. I got to say you're more of a libertarian than Gary Johnson because Gary Johnson is not a libertarian. He's some sort of 
Republican liberal combination that he's just sort of made up and uh, he's labeled himself a libertarian. But yeah, I don't think he's a libertarian at all. But I just wanted to get your input on that and then talk about it a little bit. We can uh, launch right into talking about some criminal justice issues, talking about some felonies. We have some pretty important stuff to talk about today. And the first topic actually is happening here in the state of Pennsylvania, the state of Pennsylvania prison system. So I think it's it makes sense to talk about it with you and I both being in Pennsylvania, me in Pittsburgh and you in Philadelphia. So the title to this story is, is A Life in Solitary, Cruel and Unusual. And what this has to do, it has to do with a man named Arthur Johnson. And Arthur Johnson is an intellectually disabled man, and he's been in solitary confinement for 36 years. 36 years in solitary confinement. Let that sink in for a minute. Yes, that's longer than either of us have been alive, which frankly floored me when I read this. It's disgusting, but let's, let's get into the details of it here first, and we'll talk about it. So there's been a federal lawsuit and an injunction requested that has been filed by Johnson's lawyers, Arthur Johnson's lawyers, and they want the judge to issue this injunction that would quickly get Johnson out of solitary and into a step-down program designed to reintegrate him back into the general prison population. Now, the backstory on Johnson, on how this all happened, when he was 18 years old, way back in 1970, 1970, that's a long freaking time ago, he was sent to prison with a uh, on-life-without-parole sentence. He was convicted of murder. And then in 1979, Johnson was removed from the general prison population for allegedly being involved in an escape attempt, and there was a hostage situation involved. And by Johnson's own account, he admits that that this happened, and he admits that he, at the beginning of his time in prison, he lashed out at guards and fellow inmates because he was struggling with adapting to the fact, this is a mentally challenged man, struggling with adapting to the fact that he was going to spend the rest of his life in prison. So after this hostage and escape episode, Johnson was put into isolated detention, and then he was shipped to 12 different prison facilities over the next 36 years. In every single one of those prison facilities, he was put right back into solitary confinement. And solitary confinement, for those that don't know, that pretty much you're locked into a 7-foot by 12-foot cell, an artificially lit cell. And in Johnson's case, he was only permitted outside once per day, weather permitting. If it's raining, you can't go outside. And even when he was outside, he was still put inside a cage outside and he was strip searched before being put in that cage. The man has not had physical contact. He has not touched another human being in decades. Just let that sink in for a minute. That is sick. That is not humane treatment. Now, this case gets a little twist part to it, as I like to say. The lead defendant in the case, filed by Arthur Johnson's lawyers, is John Wetzel. Now, John Wetzel, is he's nationally renowned as being a reform-minded influence in the criminal justice system, and he is the secretary of the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections. Now, the part that doesn't jive here is there were actually restrictions that Wetzel and the PA prison administration, PA prison bureaucrats, say that they have recently placed on the use of solitary confinement in Pennsylvania. Now, these state corrections officials... They pledge to end solitary confinement for mentally ill inmates, but yet, yet they kept Arthur Johnson in his solitary confinement. Perhaps the strongest portion of the case in favor of Johnson, and the one that I think state officials are going to have the hardest time explaining away, are allegations that Johnson has not been given any sort of any meaningful opportunity, any chance of recourse in order to change his circumstances and get out of this hell of being 
trapped in this solitary confinement maze. State prison officials have been telling the public, they've been telling the Justice Department that they have been pushing to give uh, these mentally ill people in solitary confinement due process, pushing for due process for these inmates. And obviously, their actions are not the same as their rhetoric. So this is a pretty sick case, JB. Just first of all, what are your impressions of this? I was frankly shocked that this was occurring. I had no idea that the mentally ill, in particular, people with lowered faculties, were being treated this way in, I guess, the criminal justice system. I was always of the thought that, you know, people who are mentally ill were put in separate facilities where they could get, you know, um, psychiatric treatment and things of that nature, not essentially thrown in a hole for a generation, which is the amount of time this man has been in solitary confinement, an entire generation has gone by. And where they could at least, you know, maybe not get better, but at the very least not deteriorate, which is what's exactly happening to Arthur Johnson and his generation of solitary confinement here. But I guess that was just wishful thinking on my part. And while I was reading this article, I was seeing some of the statistics that they threw out that, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, about a third of the inmates in solitary confinement in Pennsylvania have some type of mental illness. So this isn't exactly rare that this is occurring. And I just see that as definitely a case of cruel and unusual punishment, especially when they're given no opportunity to escape from this punishment. Yeah, it, it seems like it, it's par for the course, which is which is just a sick part. And I don't see how this isn't a violation of the Eighth Amendment. The Eighth Amendment is supposed to protect us as citizens of this country from cruel and unusual punishment. I don't understand how this is not cruel and unusual punishment. Arthur Johnson was not sentenced to spending 36 years in solitary confinement. No one can be sentenced to that. He was sentenced to spending time in prison. So the, these prison officials probably, probably because they want to make it easier on themselves, it's probably easier for them on the prison guards, on the prison system to put these mentally challenged people, to lock them in a hole rather than to have to treat them and take care of them in the general prison population. So I would guess, and I, I could be wrong, I would guess, give me a, a different opinion if you have one, JB, but I would guess they're doing this out of convenience. Oh, most certainly. Without a doubt, this is just the easiest way of dealing with a difficult situation. And that's just what they do. I just really don't know what to say about this because it's just so shocking that people with mental illnesses can just be treated so unfairly and... And this is just after, like, how long has he been in? For 36 years? We're just now hearing about it? it this is basically amounts to cruel, unusual punishment. This is basically a torture. To remove a human being, a homo sapien, a very a social creature, away from all human contact and simulation for that long, if you didn't have mental illness already, you were definitely going to get it. This just doesn't make any sense to me like how someone could be treated in this fashion. It's barbaric. There's, there's really no other word. It really is. And it's, it's torture. It is. It's sickening for me to think that, and this is happening in other states too, but we're talking about Pennsylvania here. This is the state I've spent most of my life in, that people, the government administrators in this state, the prison, the uh, administrators of the criminal justice system in this state will allow us to happen. Now, it doesn't really surprise me 
actually the extent of this 36 years in solitary confinement that does surprise me you know it probably shouldn't surprise me what these people will do just to make life easier on themselves with complete disregard for the human being that you're dealing with complete disregard for the individual rights of that human being i mean often we talk about on this show in different situations about standing up for the individual rights of the most vulnerable in society Mentally challenged people, in my opinion, obviously are part of the most vulnerable in society. So that's why I wanted to bring this story up. I want to talk about it today with you, JB, because I don't see, I mean, this article was written, obviously. This article was written on the marshallproject.org, and we will link to it in the show notes. But you're not going to see this on CNN or Fox News or any of the cable news shows. You're not going to see it on, on local news, and you probably won't find it on any of their podcasts. So Um, I'm just trying to get the word out that this stuff actually happens and it's horrible. I feel like in situations like this, just to even hear about it or to get enough people to care, you have to get enough people to care about the physical and mental well-being of people who are, in fact, incarcerated. Because I'm going to just go out on a limb here and, and say at least a majority of people in our society basically think and someone who deserves to go to prison deserves to have whatever happens to them in prison happen to them. So to garner, you know, publicity for a situation like that has that hill to climb, so to speak, if you know what I mean. Yeah, that is a really good point. And I think probably definitely a majority of people in this country look down as people in prison as lesser humans, regardless if it's a violent or nonviolent offender, probably. I would hope, and I think so, in the libertarian movement, that's who we're talking to here, are sympathetic to this. So at least, hopefully, we can gain some ground in the libertarian movement to get people talking about this, because the word needs to get out, and something needs to change, because this is just, it's unacceptable behavior, in my opinion, and it needs to stop. But it's hard to move on after something just as as horrific as that first case. Next, we're going to talk about a... uh, Definitely a senator who is no friend of liberty, and he is uh, no friend of criminal justice reform. We are going to talk about the despicable Senator Tom Cotton. And he made some pretty controversial remarks regarding, uh, he was talking about mass incarceration, but uh, he was actually saying there's under incarceration. That's the problem in this country. So I'm just going to read his quote, and then then we'll break it down. So this is a direct quote from uh, Senator Tom Cotton. Take a look at the facts. First, the claim that too many criminals are being jailed, that there is over-incarceration, ignores an unfortunate fact. For the vast majority of crimes, a perpetrator is never identified or arrested, let alone prosecuted, convicted, and jailed. He continues then, law enforcement is able to arrest or identify a likely perpetrator for only 19% of property crimes and 47% of violent crimes. If anything, we have an under-incarceration problem. JB, do you agree with uh, Senator Tom Cotton here? Not in the slightest. And even if I did, that would bring up far more pressing questions than how we can put more people in jail. I think his remarks there kind of have, as soon as I read it, I was like, well, you're kind of proving the point, aren't you? I mean, I think the problem why cops aren't catching, um, they're only you know catching 19% of the property crimes and 47% of violent crimes, if those statistics are even true, which they might not be, is because they're chasing down all these nonviolent drug offenders. I would think that is a, a large part of it. 
I think I, we even we spoke about this before dealing with the state case with the marijuana. A disproportionate amount of police time and resources is spent fighting drug offenses, particularly nonviolent drug offenses that could be funneled towards, you know, getting these violent criminals off the street instead of, you know, dealing with this kid selling pot down the corner or someone smoking in their backyard or things of that nature. And that probably definitely contributes to the problem. What would you do if uh, Donald Trump picked Senator Tom Cotton as his vice president? What would I do? You mean not vote for him any less than I planned on voting for him? (laughs) What would be your reaction? Do you think that ticket could win? No. I don't think there's a snowball's chance in hell that ticket would win, but Donald Trump has never ceased to surprise me, so who knows? Maybe we'll hear about it tomorrow. I'm just trying to picture ways that this election could get any more insane and um, just generally bad for humanity. That would be a way. Hopefully that's not going to happen. I don't think it will. But I'm curious about your thoughts on one issue that he brought up in your quote. What are your thoughts on mandatory minimum sentences? I'd like to hear what your thoughts are on that. Are those fair? Is that just? I don't think there should be mandatory minimum sentences. I think the entire idea of mandatory minimum sentences is unjust. When you look at someone who commits a crime, and a, a lot of the mandatory minimum sentences have to do with uh, you know, nonviolent crimes, drug offenses, but there are some that have to do with violent crimes. So ones that have to do with violent crimes, when you're charged with a crime and you're put on trial, a jury of your peers is presented with evidence against you, and they are to determine if your behavior is reasonable. They're to determine, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt if you committed a crime. So I don't think there's any need for these uh, mandatory minimums. I think they're only a way to further push more people into the criminal justice system. What do you think, JB? I'm fairly certain that the concept of mandatory minimum sentences as an idea in the justice system came about specifically to combat drug crime. For the sense that They didn't want to leave any ambiguity to how much time someone's to spend if they're found with a few grams of cocaine. They wanted that to be set because depending on the jury, some people might not think that's a big deal and others might think that it is. But things, more violent crimes, more crimes like murder, for example, is pretty cut and dry, like the sentencing that the judge would present and what people would deem as fair. But things such as drug crimes, especially nonviolent drug crimes, the only way I guess the founders of this principle are concerned could get enough people in jail for these crimes is to enforce a mandatory minimum sentence. I'm almost certain that this concept came about to fight drug crime. That's a really good point. I think that would be a good topic for us to explore farther, the history of mandatory minimum sentences on a later show. I think that be, would be worthwhile. But I think you're absolutely right in your analysis. I think it's pretty spot on. So thank you for bringing that up. Well, there was one more thing I wanted to bring up before we move on from the, the Tom Cotton article. What were your thoughts on his... Uh, I think I have a quote here about disenfranchisement rights. I don't know if it, this has been on a podcast or in personal, but I think it was the last podcast we did that I feel that reform felons back in society should be given the right to vote. And I think his quote was, should felons be trusted to elect legislators who make the law? 
prosecutors who enforce it and judges who apply it with the idea that's giving reform felons, supposedly because they've been let out of prison, clearly the justice system feels like they're safe to be regular members of society, giving them the right to vote would somehow influence legislator, prosecutors, and judges in the voting booth to be more lenient on crime. Which, when I read this quote, I was like, this is the most insane thing I've ever heard. Like, how is that even possible, giving, you know, um, former felons the right to vote is all of a sudden going to open the floodgates to pro-crime state senators or something of that nature, whatever he thinks he was going at. Did you notice that? No, I, I hadn't heard that quote, but I think Tom Cotton is just outspoken. But I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of his Republican colleagues and a lot of far right wing people in this country would agree with that. They just don't say it. That's how misguided they are. I mean, that's where the whole idea obviously comes from for, you know, not giving felons their Second Amendment rights and voting rights. It's just kind of suppressed and people don't talk about it. But if they think the criminal justice system is broken and can't reform people, which is what they think if they don't want to give them their uh, gun rights and they don't want to give them their voting rights, among other rights, then why wouldn't they think that too? I think that kind of, I think that makes sense to me that their logic is so demented. So they just take it one step farther. I mean, it's, it's obviously screwed up, but it's not surprising. All right. So let's move on and we're going to play America's fastest growing podcast game show. Is this a crime? And should anyone do time? You excited JB? Oh, I'm ready. <laughs> I'm at the edge of just, my seat here. Just been waiting since the last time you were on the show. When can I play this game again? It's time of your life. The first one we're going to talk about, and I'll, I'll link to this article, obviously, in the show notes. It's like a 9,000-page article, so don't feel like you have to read the whole thing. I think JB read like 90% of it. I did not. But the, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the title of the article is Alabama Leads Nation in Turning Pregnant Women into Felons. And it's an older article but I really just want to take some of the ideas from it in order to phrase a question here on is this a crime and should anyone do time here? So what this has to do with is a pregnant woman in Alabama who admitted to a nurse while she was in labor that she took some small doses of Valium during her pregnancy. And she, you know, obviously she admitted, when I say admitted this, I mean after, you know, when you're pregnant, as soon as you go in the hospital and you're pregnant, you're in labor, they just start drawing your blood, testing your urine testing for everything, see for the baby's health and everything. And one thing they do test for is drugs. So they found the substance in her system and she admitted to taking the Valium. Now she delivers the baby, the baby's healthy, totally fine. And she admitted to the nurse that it was Valium. It wasn't something else, probably a mistake in hindsight. And so she thinks everything's fine. She takes the baby home. A couple of weeks pass, I should say. And the baby is with a sitter while she's back at work. And the authorities come in and they arrest her. And she's charged with knowingly, recklessly, and intentionally causing her baby to be exposed to a controlled substance in the womb. This is a felony punishable, in her case, up to 10 years in prison. And this law comes from, she had run afoul of Alabama's chemical endangerment of a child statute. Now, in the whole country, Alabama has the toughest criminal law on prenatal drug use. And this was passed in 2006, just as the meth crisis was raging in uh, Alabama communities, Alabama's poorer communities. And the law was made to target parents who were, you know, using their kitchens and homes to, you know, make meth labs pretty much and to try to prevent them from putting children at risk. The intent of the law makes sense, but that doesn't mean that every instance of the law makes sense. 
So under the law, under this uh, Chemical Endangerment Act, even if the baby is born perfectly healthy, in this case, the case we're talking about here, the penalties are super stiff. It's up to one to 10 years in prison if the baby's fine, 10 to 20 years if the baby shows any harm, and 10 to 99 years if the baby dies. So, JB, my question to you is, if this happens, you know, if a pregnant woman is, you know, shown to have a illicit drug in her system, should this be a crime? Well, it's complicated. This isn't so cut dry as, is this a crime? Isn't a crime? But because... First and foremost, I think the way that this law is being applied in this instance is definitely unlawful in the sense that these people are not consenting to this drug testing, or are they even given knowledge that they're going to be tested for drugs before this happens? Sorry to interrupt you there, but I would assume in the paperwork they sign, you know, hundreds of pieces of paperwork throughout your pregnancy. I think the hospital, I kind of remember this when we had our baby and and Nicole was in the hospital having Ruby. I think they send you a whole packet ahead of time and you have to sign everything before you even go. You pretty much sign all your rights away, essentially. Okay, that may well be the case. But according to the article and the the people who who had experienced the brunt of this law, they say that they weren't giving any prior knowledge of this drug testing or consent when they were in fact tested. But maybe they did sign something that they didn't notice or something vague that makes this fall under the umbrella. I'm not sure. But even if that is the case, the fact that the way that this law is applied is too, what's the word I'm looking for? It's too vague. It's too discriminant. Like I was reading in the article, it's like depending on what county you live in, the percentage of people who will even get tested is vastly different. It's like almost profiling, for an instance, who will get tested and who would not. And I don't feel like that's an appropriate way to apply a law. And is this a crime? I think that opens up a huge can of worms, particularly if we're going to look at this from a libertarian standpoint. Because whether or not this is a crime pretty much goes hand in hand on what your thoughts on abortion is in the, I guess, the status of a fetus. And there's definitely no consensus, as far as I know, amongst libertarian philosophy or the community on whether on that particular stance. So before you can say this is a crime, I think you have to be in one camp or another. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, Yeah, I think for the most part, I think there is a way to kind of divide it up, to break a piece off where it makes sense. So in order for there to be a crime, someone's rights have to be violated. And in order for someone's rights to be violated, you know, there has to be some sort of damage or infringement or harm done. And if there's no harm to the baby, if the baby is fully healthy, then I don't see how there's any way that that there can be a crime there. Now, I mean, that doesn't mean that, you know, the child might be at risk still. I mean, maybe, you know, maybe in certain cases, the the parents could be meth heads and, you know, the, the child just got lucky and is healthy. But I don't think it should be used as an excuse just to uh, catch people for manufacturing meth or for ingesting meth. Obviously, as a libertarian, I think people should be allowed to do with their bodies as they want to. I believe in self-ownership. But at the same time, obviously, you have to, someone has to watch out for the rights of the child. As we've talked about on past episodes, if some crazy person is giving their kid meth, you know, a two-year-old toddler meth, then that's a crime. They're violating that child's rights. So 
I'm not sure if I answered your question there. I, I do understand what you're saying. That's the thing. Like, I don't think that you did. If you're a pro-choice proponent, like, where do these rights begin and end? Basically, let's just say, for example, you are a pro-choice proponent and you are in favor of this law. Someone who is, I guess, a pro-life proponent would say, you want to prosecute these people for potentially making a child sick, but killing them is okay. I can see that argument coming up. It's a very hairy issue that I think really hinges on your position on that, the actual status of a fetus before it is born. Yeah, personally, I am pro-life as soon as there's a heartbeat. So in my view, as soon as there's a heartbeat, and if a mother is taking something, if they're smoking, if they're drinking, if they're ingesting harmful things that could harm the baby, not that could harm the baby, that can be proven did harm the baby or kill the baby, then I think they should be held responsible. And I'm not sure what the penalty should be, if there should be time or not. I think there's a crime there. Well, I think like for one, you brought up a point that I was going to just bring up is like, does fetal alcohol syndrome not exist anymore? Because last I checked, that doesn't fall under this law and can be just as damaging to a newborn as taking any illicit drug. But seeing that alcohol is not illegal, and as far as I'm concerned, you can't really test for it unless they've been drinking hours before pregnancy. I mean, before giving birth, that gets a free pass. It is a really tough subject. And, you know, we're, you and I talking right now, I, we're not going to come to a consensus right here. But I think discussions like this about topics like this are worth having. Because as libertarians, I think we have a unique viewpoint where we can look at this from a, a self-ownership standpoint. And, and although there are huge disagreements, as you pointed out, especially in the libertarian community of uh, pro-life and pro-choice, I think starting to hash out Laws like this and talk through if there's harm done can only help people to get more clear views on the pro-life and pro-choice uh, topic. Just to, to round it off, just to give my final thoughts on it, I think this shouldn't be a crime because anyone is abusing drugs to the point of harming their fetus actually needs treatment instead of incarceration, it's particularly after the birth of the child when that child would probably need their mother. So I feel like this is more of a treatment thing than an incarceration thing. So I would say not a crime. Okay. I knew I'd get an answer out of you. There we go. <laughs> not a crime. Okay. But moving on to our second, is this a crime and should anyone do time? This has to do with a, a teen just being a complete moron. This occurred in Livingston County, New York. And a, uh, a teen by the name of Ryan... Bonadonna even has a, a stupid name. <laughs> he was charged. I think with, that means good lady in Italian. No, <laughs> oh, does it really? Oh, that's a great name then, sir. Sorry about that. I should learn Italian. I didn't know you knew Italian, JB. Oh, they're similar. French, you know, French, Italian. <laughs> that's true. All those, all those European languages are the same, aren't they? Pretty much. He was charged with felony criminal possession of a firearm. And he's also facing charges from the state DEC for discharging a firearm on a roadway. Now, the story behind this, the cops are saying they received a complaint involving Bonadonna. And he allegedly posted this video on Snapchat. And the video reportedly shows him in a vehicle 
in the town of Leicester with a 357 revolver owned by his father, and he fired it out of the car. And according to deputies, the revolver was taken from his father without him even knowing. So, JB, I mean, this is, you know, obviously this, this kid's being a moron here. But does this kid have a right to just fire a gun that is not registered to him out of the window of a car? Well, whether or not it's registered to him is besides the point. You probably shouldn't be firing out of a car indiscriminately anyway. That causes a, a public danger issue. And I feel like wherever you fall on the stand of gun rights or a concealed carry or whatnot, I feel like pretty much everyone can agree that you should only discharge a weapon when you absolutely need to. Unless, of course, you're at the range, you know, but just to indiscriminately be firing on a road that is, you know, occupied by the public is definitely a public danger issue. And this is definitely a crime to me. So I think I pretty much agree with you. I guess a a couple caveats. First of all, as a gun owner, as someone who owns a gun, this kid is a complete moron and he's a moron to be firing a gun out of his car anywhere. That's just crazy. It's dangerous and it's stupid. But with that being said, if he was on his own private land, which he wasn't, but if he was on his own private land wanting to fire a gun out of a car, he should be allowed to. If it was a, uh, a city-state type setup or, I guess in uh, you know, common terms, a, an HOA type setup, not like a, a townhouse community or something, but say if you had a bunch of property owners together and they wanted to make their own rules and say you can fire a gun out of your car, then he should be allowed to. I don't think that... He hasn't violated anyone's rights. He didn't harm anyone. But, you know, in the city that he's in, I think it's a public safety hazard to be just firing a gun indiscriminately out of a car window. And the kid's a moron. It's a crime in this instance. Um, I don't know if he should do time. I mean, they should probably just embarrass him somehow. I think this story has embarrassed him a lot. So it looks like he'll face a hefty fine at least. So that's good. I don't necessarily think that, you know, incarceration is warranted for this. But definitely, you know, some type of punishment is in order. Maybe community service or something. Something where he can be at least a more productive member of society than just sitting on his bed waiting to leave, you know. Something like community service I would give for this. Maybe just like tie him to like a pole in the Times Square and let people dump like buckets of ice water on him. That's a community service if I've ever heard one. (laughs) I would love to do that. That could work. It generates some revenue for the city. Charge like five bucks, you know? <laughs> yeah. Don't give it uh, to the government. You could have like a raffle. Everyone who, you know, they could, you know, you buy a raffle ticket and then the winner gets all the money. It'd be like a, you know, be a nice little thing. Yeah, I'd love it. <laughs> all right. Well, I think we've had some fun today talking about these felonies. You know, it's been some very serious topics and uh, we like to joke around a little bit to, you know, to get past the seriousness, to cut through that. But thanks for coming back on the show, JB. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. With that being said, guys, we're going to close out the show. So if you like what you listened to today, and if you're going to listen again, then you can make it easier on yourself by making sure to subscribe through iTunes or Stitcher Radio. If you can't find iTunes or Stitcher Radio, you can find a link to subscribe on the show notes page at linesofliberty.com slash FF24. And if you haven't joined our private Facebook group yet, the Lions of Liberty Forum, you're probably going to want to check it out. It's really exploding in numbers right now. There's a lot of good conversations going on. And you can find that group just by going to Facebook, 
punch in Lions of Liberty form in the search bar. It'll pop up and we'll get you approved and you can join the conversation. If you guys happen to come across any stories like we talked about today that you'd like to hear uh, me and a co-host like JB talk about, you can email me at felonyfriday at lionsofliberty.com and we'll probably talk about it. So feel free to do that or you can bring it up after joining in the forum and we can talk about it there too. So as always, guys, I want to thank you for listening again today. This is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up and the fires of liberty burning.